0: Thank you, Kimo. Well, good morning once again. Um, you guys can feel very sorry for me and not for my wife for being snowed in because I'm watching the kids all weekend, right? I know. Boo hoo, world's smallest violin. The other night, um, I, w- I was downstairs with the kids and we were watching YouTube video clips and I fell asleep on the couch. Not unnormal. Um, I woke up at 11.45 in the evening and the kids were still going at it. (laughs) Are you guys good at keeping secrets? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, dad of the year. And now I'm going to share my wisdom from the word of God with you. So this morning, uh, we are going to be talking about community, community and why we need community to grow. And, you know, I could give you a lot of different applications, uh, a lot of different pictures of that. But I was reading a book by Larry Crabb called Becoming a True Community. And he he put together this this picture um, that really struck me. He and his wife were walking in Miami And this is what they saw. He said, At one point, we walked in front of a wood-slated porch, maybe 10 feet deep, with perhaps 60 feet of sidewalk frontage. At least 100 chairs were arranged in neat rows and columns, none touching, each in exactly the same position to the others. The occupied chairs, and most of them were, Each held one motionless retired man or woman staring straight ahead at the streets. I can't recall seeing anyone rocking, though I'm sure someone was. I do remember that no heads turned to follow the passing taxi or pedestrian or to chat with another porch sitter. There were no paperback novels, no newspapers, Not even a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea. There was no conversation, no evidence that any of these people had been created by a relational God to enjoy intimate relating. These people's souls were asleep, numbed. I suppose by years of lifeless relationship and pointless conversations. No doubt those conversations had all seemed important at the time business deals, romantic encounters, child scoldings, religious meetings but maybe such encounters with other people had never touched anything deep enough to stir life. Now, this, of course, is a sad picture, right? Uh, here you have these individuals who have, uh, you know, set their life up on a trajectory. Right? They probably came from New York or Chicago, south of Boston, and their big, grand design for life was that I am going to go and retire in Florida. But now look at them. Nobody's relating to one another. Crab says no one's turning their chair toward one another to be in relationship. As I thought about this in reading Crab's book, I couldn't help but think to myself, I wonder what the Holy Spirit sees when he walks into the average American church on a Sunday morning. All the chairs facing the same way. Are people actually engaging in meaningful community? Are they relating to one another? Uh, or does he see a group of Christians kind of just lined up, facing forward, passing the time Is that what we look like? When the author of Hebrews wrote the words in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, I don't think that the author had in mind that church would just merely be a gathering where people come together, they sit when they're supposed to sit, stand when they're supposed to stand, sing songs when Kimo tells us to sing songs, put a little money in the offering plates hear a message, say a couple of casual nice things to one another and then go home. No, I think that the author was envisioning a vibrant and alive community of believers. A community of Christians who are, yes, coming together for corporate worship, receiving the word of God, singing from the heart, lifting up prayers together. But also a community That is reaching out together, relating to one another, growing together, doing life together. So, as we consider what I have to say this morning and the implications from the scriptures, my goal this morning is to get you guys to turn your chairs in as a community. Now, it's going to be a really hard goal for you guys to physically do because those chairs are actually interlocked together. So we're talking a little more metaphorical here. But we're going to do this by taking a a biblical theological survey of the Bible. Sometimes we do what is called an expository sermon. That's where we're in a passage and I'm explaining what the passage means to you. A biblical theological survey asks the question of what does the Bible in total have to say about this? So we often start in Genesis with creation. We move into the fall. We go to the gospel, and that's what we're going to do this morning as we take a look at community. So let's begin with this first idea about community. We were created for authentic community. The Bible opens up, and it tells us, in the beginning, God. Now that is, as Moses is unpacking that, that is an axiomatic statement It's a self-evident truth. Moses doesn't begin with a list of propositions to defend why God exists. No, Moses starts off the Bible and he says, guess what, guys? Deal with it. God exists. And as we learn more about this God, even in Genesis chapter 1, we find out that this God existed in eternity, in perfect, self-contained, joy-filled, completely satisfying relationship within himself. I want to talk to you about the Trinity because the Trinity is where we see God relating within himself and he has existed as a triune God for eternity. Let me give you a definition of what the Trinity is. This is from Bruce Ware. Um, He gives this explanation. It's important to know some of these things as we form as Christians The definition is this, the Christian faith affirms that there is one and only one God, eternally existing and fully expressed uh, as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is equally God, each is eternally God, each fully God, not three gods, but three persons in one Godhead. Each person is equally, in essence, as each possesses fully The identical same eternal divine nature, yet each is also an eternal and distinct person, personal expression of the one undivided divine nature. Is your brain hurting yet? It should, a little bit. I mean, God is complex. God is, if you say, well, I can't fully understand God, good, good. We can't fully understand God. We can understand the things that he reveals about himself to us, and we can by faith say, yes, I I accept that. But we're not going to fully understand God. So what do we know about the Trinity? Well, the Trinity for all of eternity has existed in self-giving, love, relationship. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit— God is essentially relational. And we ask the philosophical question, why is there something rather than nothing? And that's actually an important question when it comes to God and comes to us. And the reason is, is again, in the biblical worldview, you have to understand this, God did not need to create us. You got that? God did not need to create us. One theological principle that's very important to affirm is the society of God. God is the uncaused cause. God does not need anything. He didn't need to create people for his psychological benefit or his own personal set of needs. So the real question we have to ask about God is, well, why did he create us? Uh, One theologian writes this. The scriptures hints at the reason. It seems that God's purpose in creation was so that he could invite a community of his image bearers in Christ to participate in the eternal love relationship that the Trinity enjoys thus displaying his glory. Wow. If you want to see more on that, you can look up on your own time John 17 verses 20 to 25. You can look up Ephesians 3:10 through 11. So God exists in eternal relationship. He chooses to create us out of his own goodness as image bearers. And so the logical conclusion is this. If, if God has existed in eternal community, and if he created us to be his image bearers, then it is logical to say that authentic community is God's intention for Humanity. God created you to be in real, vibrant, authentic community. That's why in Genesis 2.18, the Bible says, it is not, what, good that the man should be alone. Genesis 1, everything's good. God did this, good, 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 very good. Genesis 2.18, not good. So here's the principle. God has designed us, desire, crave, what he has eternally enjoyed within himself. And that is community. That's relationships. So let's leave the perfect land of Genesis 1 and 2 and we're going to go now to the darker side of the Bible story, which is Genesis 3, the fall. Sin coming into the world impacts everything about God's creational order. It impacts especially the relationships that we ex- experience, the way that we experience relationships in, world, uh, in total. We now live in a world filled with broken relationships. And think about how sin has impacted relationships. Let's go up to like the large scale. Think about societies, right? Why does war exist? It exists because some nations want power, and they're not willing to, what, coexist. Why does jail exist? Well, jail exists because people breach basic relational rules. You should not take what is not yours. You should not harm someone else's person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we, in our own personal spheres, experience relational dysfunction. I bet you anything, if I went and did a survey around this room, someone has a strained relationship with someone that they are very close to. Spouse, brother, sister, friend. Relational breakdown. You know what else sin does? Not only does it cause the relational breakdown, but it also... Uh, kind of inspires us to create our own solutions. And when we create our own solutions, they they don't tend to work very well. In our modern Western culture, for example, uh, the current solutions to relational dysfunction twofold uh, is the idea of individualism and isolationism. So let me break that down for you a little bit. Uh, Individualism is the I am an island mentality. I can pick myself up by my bootstraps and take care of myself. You know, America kind of mentality. Isolationism is the loss of the need and the loss of the art of relating. You get that? The loss of the need to relate and the loss of the art of relating. Basically, people section themselves off from life-giving community and, of course, This is harmful. I could show you countless examples of studies or statistics that show when people isolate themselves from community that it hurts them physically, emotionally, spiritually. And why is that happening? Well, many reasons. But one of the big ones is our value of being self-made, self-efficient, Self-sustaining. I was recently reading a book um, called The Boys in the Boat. Anybody interacted with that book? It's excellent. New York Times bestseller. Uh, Basically, uh, it follows the story of nine boys uh, out from Washington who uh, form a team together in the sport of rowing and they go off to Hitler's Germany in 1936 and win the gold medal in the Olympics. I mean, just classic Americana when you think about it, right? So in this story, the main character, Joe Rance, uh, he goes through a moment where he decides that he is going to kind of never entrust himself to someone again. It all comes about because he has had his heart broken three times by his father. Uh, Two times Uh, Once, when his mother died, another time because his stepmother told his dad to boot him out of the house. And now, at the age of 15, once again, the father says, uh, I've got to leave. You're a man now. Take care of yourself. And uh, it gives us an idea of Joe's thought process, the reeling of the hurt, the pain, the complete distrust to open himself up any further. Listen to what it says. Very slowly, as he ate the bacon and the coffee cleared his mind, the spinning in his head began to diminish, and he found himself creeping up on a new realization. He opened his eyes and seized it, took it in, comprehended it all at once, and found that it came accompanied by a fierce determination, a sense of rising resolution. He was sick and tired of finding himself in this position. Scared and hurt and abandoned and endlessly asking himself why. Whatever else came his way, he wasn't going to let this happen again. From now on, he would make his own way, find his own route to happiness. He would never again let himself depend on them. Not his family, not anyone else for his sense of who he was. He would survive and he would do it on his own. And by the way, this is a true story, a great story. And I think one of the reasons moments like this in books connect with us because maybe you can relate to Joe's experience. Maybe there was some point in your life where you opened your heart to somebody else and they were not careful with your heart's. They left you in the relational dust in some way or another. There was someone that was supposed to be someone that you could trust yourself to. And what did they do? They hurt you. And so now you say to yourself internally, well, I'm not planning on being a hermit. I'm not going to just discount relationships altogether. I'll engage with people, but I'm never going to open my heart like that again. No one's ever hurting me like that again. Well, friend, the problem is, is you were made to open your heart to other people. Yes, we do live in a sin-sick world, but if we don't open our hearts to other people, if we don't learn how to be authentic authentic and real, if we don't learn to trust and be accountable and be a part of something bigger than ourselves, well then we're really just living very, very, very impoverished lives. Well, how does that happen? How do we build community like that? Well, I'd say in some ways we've lost the art of it. I would say that at some point I want to actually preach a series on biblical friendship. I want to talk about it. What is friendship? What is friendship not? J.F. Packard said of the Puritans that they used to pray fervently and regularly, that God would give them one bosom friend. Someone that they could open up to completely and tell that person about what was really happening in the inner recesses of their heart. Someone that they could pray with regularly. And you know how they went about finding that one bosom friend? They would get into the church community. They would get into small group settings. And that's how it tended to happen. But we've lost the art. Especially men. In his book, The Friendless American Male, David Smith says that women seem to have a monopoly on meaningful, intimate relationships. Men have friendships which relate to work or play, but seldom go beyond the surface. That's because men have buddies, but they don't have deep friends. They spend time together, but they don't actually share themselves. They talk about problems, but they don't open themselves up. You know what the Scriptures has to say about that? Proverbs 18, 1. One who has isolated himself seeks his own desires. He rejects all sound desires. Judgment. In that same chapter in Proverbs, Solomon talks about friendship, and he says this, a person who has friends may be harmed by them. And that's that type of friendship where we have a lot of mutual acquaintances, people that we kind of surface uh, relate to. People who want something from you, you add something to them, but not something for you. So Solomon says, a person who has many friends may be harmed by them, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's what we want in Christian community. We want that kind of depth. We want the kind of depth where Christians are turning their chairs toward one another, relating to one another. Friends, by the way, that doesn't happen in two or three weeks. You know, I talk to people all the time. They're like, I just can't build relationships. How long have you been trying? Three weeks. Three weeks? Like, I don't remember someone's name until week four. It takes ten years to build a ten-year friendship. And the only way you can do that is by keep coming back to the community. Keep investing in the community. You be the friendship initiator. That's how it happens. So if God created us to be in community and sin has destroyed our ability to be in community, the real question is, was, what does the gospel have to say about that? How does the gospel impact our relationships? Uh, the thing I love about the gospel message is that it is a holistic message. All too often, we stop short with the gospel. We say, Jesus came and he died on the cross for my sins. End of story. But I got to tell you, the gospel runs a lot deeper than that. It involves every area of your life. Everything that sin destroyed, uh, distorted, or destroyed, God is redeeming because of Christ's sacrifice. So, friends, the gospel is about more than just us going to heaven, it's about abundant life now. Abundant life all the way to eternity and through eternity. Think about the content that we share with someone when we're telling them the gospel is just being the trailer to the movie. You know, there's some great movie trailers out there, but I like the movie a lot better. It just gives us the highlights. The movie, though, the movie is the process of the Spirit of God Changing us, or as we say in our vision here, transforming us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Changed into whose glorious image? Christ's. The Holy Spirit's design is to hold up a template of Christ and to work on your life and your character so that you look like him. That's God's plan. He wants you to be the person that you were always meant to be. He wants you to live the fullness of life that can only come when a person is in a right relationship with God and dwelt by the Spirit and is on a trajectory to look like Jesus. And When that happens, it doesn't mean that we lose our individuality somehow. We don't like, get absorbed into a sea of Jesus and become one big Jesus blob together. No. God is making you into the person of Jesus to be the person that you were always meant to be. You are like Jesus, but a special edition version. That's the beauty of the gospel. So how do we grow to look like Jesus? Well, a couple of things that we need. One is God's Spirit. The Spirit of God is the power for change. We also need the Word of God. The Word of God is the Spirit-inspired Word so that when I'm studying the Bible, the Spirit is changing my heart and my mind, changing my worldview and my affections. Thirdly, Here's what very important means that sometimes we miss. is God's people. The church. When you place your faith in Jesus, God puts you into a body of Christ that is a community that is meant to mutually grow one another. Look at Ephesians 4.11 and 12. It's on the screen there for you, the New Living Translation. These are the gifts Christ gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers The responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Build up for what? Verse 13. This will continue until we all measure up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So my job as a pastor is not to be a minister to you. Uh, No, 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 no. According to the Bible, I am to be an equipper. And your job is to do ministry and to build one another up. That's why, as a pastor, I I don't want to be involved in everything. I don't want to be the creative thinker for everything that happens within the church. I want the body to creatively think about how we can reach people and how we can grow together. It's your job. Your job is to build one another up. The Spirit placed you in this body this local expression, this local church because you need other Christians to grow and they need you to grow. You get that? The Spirit uses the community to grow the individual. So don't miss the point. The point is this. You cannot receive everything you need to grow by yourself at home. You will not grow into the mature Christian that the Spirit intends if you are just you, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. You need other Christians to continue to grow. The Spirit intends to use other Christians to minister growth agents to you. And the Spirit also needs you to come into the local church and minister those agents to other people. And get this, the Spirit places people in the church that you naturally wouldn't let invest in your life because He knows what's good for you. That's right. We only want the cookies and ice cream. The Spirit says, eat your spinach. Yeah. Well, how does this happen? Well, one implicit point is that it happens when you, the church, are in authentic, intentional community with one another. It happens by being present. And by being present, I mean here, every Sunday. Uh, The thought should enter into our head. It shouldn't be just this kind of two-way decision where I said, how do I feel this morning, to go to church or not to go to church? The thought should run much deeper than that in saying, if I am not present, what will be lacking within the local church that morning? You know, if my elbow goes missing, mysteriously, right? What will be lacking for my arm? And that's what happens, isn't it? That's what Paul says in First Corinthians 12. You should check that out sometime. This is why Thrive Group community is so important, too. You know, objectively, When you enter into a local church, when you become a member of that church, you are a part of that community. Objective fact, you are a member of Osterville Baptist Church. Subjectively, though, community is felt or experienced or appreciated at smaller levels. So Thrive Group studies, 8 to 12, People are manageable units where you can actually get to know the people sitting around the table with you, be involved in their life, praying for them. That's how we can get to deeper community. What what do we do when we gather? Well, we encourage one another. Have you ever had that person that just, when they said those words to you, it went down to the core of your heart? Somehow they validated an aspect of your identity that otherwise, had they not said it, had you not heard it, you wouldn't have been validated in that way. You have to receive that from someone. You can't give that to yourself. What about accountability? I need accountability because I won't do hard things unless someone holds me accountable, like sharing my faith in Jesus. Or correction. I don't know about you, but There's been things in my life that I just absolutely could not see until someone came and said it to me. Or mentorship, or leadership, or wisdom. Why should you be in an intergenerational church? I believe because we need the young and the old to cross-pollinate with wisdom. The old give us the tribal memory, if you will. They remember what's happened. They remember how things went wrong. They're the ones that are the first to step up and say, wait a minute, think about this. This is what's happened historically. I think the young bring with them a a vitality of having their finger on the pulse of the current cultural moment. We need both in the church. We need to care for one another, we need mutual protection. Notice that you can't do any of this by yourself. You need someone else. I'd say this, too. We also get the benefit of what I would call community exegesis. What is that? Well, in Ephesians four fifteen, Paul tells us that we should speak the truth in love. That's the ESV translation. But John Stott in his Ephesians commentary notes that it should probably be translated truthing in love. Uh, The Greek text makes no reference to our speech. Rather, the idea is the idea of maintaining and living and doing the truth. So the church truths in love in front of one another. We engage in community exegesis. Exegesis means to just bring out the meaning of what something has to say. Interpretation. When I'm studying the Bible, I'm exegeting the word to better understand it. And Christians, in the context of community, become living interpretations of the word of God as we watch them live the word of God out. I have benefited from this my entire life. I have watched members exegete the word of God in front of me, both living and home with the Lord. Think about some of the things I've seen. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty five tells us to care for one another. I have learned more about what care means from my sister, Gwen Manross. I mean, Gwen is the type of Christian that if she knew another member needed her kidney, she'd be running to the hospital. She has, I I believe, gotten speeding tickets rushing to the, the hospital to be there for someone. She cares. Well, Paul tells us in uh, Colossians 3.12 to clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks a lot like how Dick Service lived his life. You see, Dick's service embodied all of those things. And I saw it personally, but I also heard the story when Dick learned that there was a a friend of his with special needs who wanted to go off to Bible college in a wheelchair and would not be able to go to school. They didn't have the helps back then. And Dick committed to that friend for four years of his college career to be with that friend day in and day out. That's selflessness. That's humility. That's gentleness. That's kindness. What about prayer? Prayer. The Bible says rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I didn't think that verse was possible until I met Miss Lula Hill. Boy, did she pray like that. Or diligence. Paul Chesbro, week after week, truthing in love, committing himself to the care of the church, the care of the members. I know that Paul has had certain people on his heart that he has diligently prayed for decades for. Joel and Lori Feenstra, perseverance in trials with joy. Jan Wyant, wisdom. William Edmonds, wisdom. Dean Smith, showing me what true surrender looks like. Robin Hayward, teaching me about compassion and heart. Stu Hickman, modeling God's heart for the loss. My friend Pierre, who I've watched or heard his story about how he came from Haiti to the United States, and I saw the providence of God involved in that story. Or Russ and Sandy Woodbridge, who taught me about commitment and faithfulness as they sank their roots into a local church in Clinton, Connecticut for 40 years. And i got to tell you, that church went through ups and downs, and guess what? They stayed until God said Go. Now, there's so many others I could speak about. I don't do justice by just naming a few, but I couldn't name anyone because we'd be here all day. So again, I just asked Katie who her favorite people are, and I went from there. (laughs) Now, you probably heard a list of people, and if you haven't been a part of this community yet, you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't really know those people. That's the thing. That's what you need. You need to get to know them. Because the more we get to know the body of Christ, the more we see the word exegete in front of us, the more we watch people truth and love by being the community, we grow from it. We benefit. Joe Rance learned the importance of his need for a community in the Boys in the Boat story. Um, These guys from the University of Washington, they accomplished something that was extraordinary, and the coach observed this happening in the boys as they worked together. He said he heard them declare their dreams and confess their shortcomings. He learned to see hope where a boy thought there was no hope. He observed the fragility of confidence and the redemptive power of trust. Now Their training schedule was grueling. As I was reading this story Early mornings, late nights, uh, w- rowing on the water over the winter. Sometimes it's so cold that the boys couldn't even wrap their fingers around their oars. There were some 300 freshmen who started off, but night after night boys would be hanging up their paddles until it had whittled down to these nine or so boys. And as nine boys stuck together, their coach learned something about community. Community. Brown says, he came to understand how they almost, those almost mystical bonds of trust and affection, if nurtured correctly, might lift a crew above the ordinary sphere, transport it to a place where nine boys somehow became one thing, a thing that could not quite be defined, a thing that was so in tune with the water and the earth and the sky above that as they rode, effort was replaced by ecstasy. It was a rare thing, a sacred thing, a thing devotedly to be hoped for. And in 1936, those nine boys in their rowing shell, the Husky Clipper, they went to Hitler's Berlin and they brought home the gold. It's an amazing thing. What if a local church found itself into the same type of groove as these nine boys? What if the members of a church learned to relate to one another, rely on one another, be authentic with one another, and instead of just being nine individual parts or 200 individual parts, we became one incorporated whole as a body of Christ moving in his direction as he leads us, as the Spirit of God leads us. Well, I believe that the only way this can be accomplished in a local church is if we commit to one another and say, I will grow with my church. Now notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, I will grow at my church, or I will grow on my own. No, I'm saying, I will grow with my church. And if that sounds like something you want to do and Lord knows it's something I want to do with you. I think we can repeat this statement together. Would you read this with me if God's laid this on your heart? I am a church member. I was created to be in community. By the Holy Spirit, I was placed into a community of the redeemed. I need my fellow church members to grow. My fellow church members need me to grow. I will not forsake the gathering of believers. I will grow with my church. Let's pray.